Hi guys, Victoria here. Before we get to the podcast, I wanted to be sure you knew about the Dog Behaviour Conference, which will be held on April the 21st to the 23rd. It's online, so you can join from anywhere, and you get full access to all recordings from the conference for one year. So it's okay if you can't join us live. You can register now at dogbehaviourconference.com, and I hope to see you there. And now, on to the podcast. Welcome to the Positively Podcast. It is on video as well as audio, so we are so pleased you can join us, and I'm very, very happy to have the most wonderful guest. Her name is Alexandra Horowitz. She is literally my favorite person to talk to when it comes to dogs. She has uh, written so many amazing books. Of course, I'm a fangirl, so I have all of them, literally all of them, except... She's just come out with a new book, which I don't have yet, but I'm excited to learn more about. It's about puppies. It's called The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. But that's not what we're going to talk about today, right at the beginning, because at the beginning, we're going to talk about the dog's sense of smell. So Alexandra is a professor at Barnard College, uh, Columbia University, and she is the lead researcher at the Dog Cognition Lab. She's spoken at many of my conferences. She's written for the New York Times and a whole host of other publications. She truly is a, an amazing person, an amazing resource when it comes to, true, to, to understanding our dog. So, Alexandra, welcome to the podcast. Totally delighted to be here. Victoria, thanks for inviting me. Now, that we've got a lot to get through, <laughs> but I did want to focus on this amazing nose, right? Their dominant sense we know is the sense of smell. And I know that you, uh, a lot of your writing and a lot of your research is sort of focused on trying to understand the dog's world from their point of view. I also think that's really important because I do think it fosters empathy. But could you tell us a little bit about the fact that your research and writing is aimed to answering the question of really what it's like to be a dog. Mm, right. In fact, I didn't start out that way at all, right? I was interested in dog mind and non-human animal minds generally, but just a little bit of research into thinking about dogs led me to realize I didn't know that much about their sense of smell. I mean, we all know dogs have good sense of smell, but I didn't know terribly much more than that, frankly what that meant for them. And I realized that in order to study them um, and to be able to make conclusions about uh, what their behavior means and, and what their cognition is, I really had to understand what it's like to be a dog. I had to understand their perceptual and sensory world. I had to take that kind of imaginative leap into their world instead of just being a person assuming that they're more or less like us, looking at them and assuming they're more or less like us, which is what we often do. So I think it's important as a scientist to take that advantage. It's also, I think, as a person who lives with dogs um, and really admires dogs, I think it's a kind of a sign of our, it's a, it's a mark of respect for dogs to um, be, as you say, empathetic and imagine their point of view. I mean, it helps the relationship between humans and dogs, but also, listen, they've been terrific companions to the species for tens of thousands of years. And I think we owe, em owe them 
I think we owe them the attention to imagine their world instead of just assuming that they're going to neatly slip into ours. And I think that's a huge mistake that people make that, um, you know, oh, because they've been domesticated for so many thousands of years, they know what it's like to live in a house and they right. know, they understand automatically our rules or they should at least know our rules. When, of course, you know, we have to teach them and um, we must never forget that these are predators living in our homes. <laughs> they are with very large teeth that don't speak <laughs> our language. And so <laughs> I think that's a reason why your research that you've been doing for so many years and writing about for so many years as well is so important uh, for for all of us to to read to acknowledge and um so that we can have a better relationship with our dog um well let's just venture then into this world of smell can we start talking about the anatomy of the dog's nose this incredible sniffer that they have to start off with i mean the nose is very dominant on their face, okay? It's what we love about them, right? This massive, beautiful um, leather, as you call it, that 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 amazing nose with that amazing movable nostrils. Can we start there and kind of work our way back? Sure. Right. The nose is a is a fabulous part of the dog. There's a Gracie uh, who graced the cover of uh, Inside of a Dog, has a particularly good schnoz there. Um, and it starts with this moist outer apparatus, uh, which it's the moisture of that outer nose is really important to catch odor molecules out of the air, um, which we can get to in a second. And then they have these two fabulous nostrils. And, you know, we think maybe a nostril is just a nostril, but it's not really. If you have dog nostrils, the musculature of each works differently, um, separately. In other words, just like we can take the pictures from two eyes and see a 3D version of the world, they can smell separate odor samples from each nostril and so create a kind of stereo olfaction that allows them to not just detect the smell, but also see um, where it came from. Um, and then as we go further back into the nose, most of the nose of my nose and of a, and Gracie's nose and all dogs is um, kind of a conduit to the part of the nose where the receptor cells um, are, which are gonna grab the odors and turn them into information that could be sent to the brain. And this conduit in the dog has these elaborate, like a roller coaster full of what are called turbinate bones, little bones that kind of race the air along uh, so that it's sort of shooting up to the back of the nose. And many of them are lined with olfactory receptor cells so that dogs can begin to kind of un-deconstruct, as it were, what the scent is, the constituents of a scent, as they're sniffing them. Um, and then they land at the back of the nose, which actually is this area, is this, in humans, it's a postage size, postage, in humans, it's a postage stamp sized tissue uh, at the back of the nose, which has olfactory receptor cells. That just means the cells that grab the odors um, and that can fire into the brain and tell the brain there's a scent. Uh, and we have about 5 million of these cells, which seems like a lot for a really small amount of tissue, but dogs have hundreds of millions more. So their whole apparatus is really tuned, just like our eyes are, to smelling as much as can be smelled in the world. And 
this amazing ability to sniff. Uh, and I tried it the other day <laughs> of like, because we are actually not great sniffers, are we? Right. If, because the, the, the makeup of our nose is that when we breathe scent in, we immediately breathe it out again. Right. Um, and if we kind of could even understand or appreciate uh, gathering scent like a dog, we'd have to sniff almost to the point where we're hyperventilating. Absolutely. Um, to, to, to keep that scent in because, because why is that? Why are humans, why are our noses constructed so badly for actually processing, <laughs> for keeping scent in our noses, for processing that scent? Whereas dogs aren't because, because right. there's almost like this kind of like circular airflow going on. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, it's a shame that we have lost our noses, as it were, uh, you know, when we were when we would have been quadrupeds in, in, in ancient history, we probably were much better smellers. But a lot of people suggest that when we became bipedal, actually, and our noses were lifted from the ground, eyes became more central to our perceptual experience and noses uh, role was diminished, not for dogs, right? And as you say, sniffing is really underappreciated. It's funny to even say we're not great sniffers. But I do say that because um, it's an important part of smelling, you know, the nose is important, the apparatus is important. But if we didn't sniff, you wouldn't smell, right? When we, th we think of sniffing as just like inhaling, and exhaling, which it is. Um, but it's also the way that the odorant molecules, the, the odors, the smells get to the olfactory receptor cells at the back of the nose to be smelled. So if you don't have a vigorous sniff, there's no way the odor is going to get to the part of the apparatus, which is actually capturing and smelling the odor, right? It's just a molecule floating in the air. Um, and they sniff better than we do in a couple of ways. They sniff more frequently than we do uh, about seven times a second on average. So try that. And as you suggest, you'll probably hyperventilate. We sniff <laughs> oh, about yes. like a normal sniff would take about a second, second and a half for a person. And if even if we did that continuously, we get a little dizzy. Um, but they uh, also exhale better than we do. So it seems to be the case because smell is not primary for us that we're okay with exhaling the odor molecules we just sniffed in often. And in fact, if you want to get a bad smell out of your nose, what do you do? You try to exhale it. But dogs yeah. are seeing the world through smell. So they don't want to exhale what they're seeing, right? They want to have a continual odor picture of the world. So the side slits of their nose, as it turns out, is how they exhale. Um, because of course, you still have to get air out to get more air in. And when they exhale out the side slits, it doesn't send all the odor molecules out. There's this circular kind of breathing that they're able to do continuously sending odors to the back of the nose to be smelled even while they're exhaling. Um, and they also have a separate route for sniffing and, and breathing, whereas we just have one blunt route. We smell while we're breathing and then we exhale and lose the scent. Um, so there's that sniff is central to their world. And if we want to be more dog like or sort of understand what it's like to be a dog, um, it would behoove us to be more sniffy. It would. And I, w I want to talk a little bit more about that later on. But could you also talk about and then we're going to go a little bit further back down the nose um, about 
the the they when they when they approach a scent, mm. is it true that they might only smell with their right nostril first? Can you right. talk a little bit about that as well? Because that is something that's that's been discovered pretty recently. Yeah, there are people whose research is mostly about um, lateralization of function. So they're interested in the fact that the left and right part of the brain, of our brain, of dogs' brains, of all brains we've studied, is often has a slightly different function. And it, when it comes to perception, noticing things through the eyes or the nose or through touch, etc., um, sides of the brain actually have slightly different roles. So it matters when you're sniffing. Um, if you have stereo, if you have noses, nostrils that can work separately, then you can have one nostril sort of take in more of the scent than the other nostril. And it is in fact the case that when smelling certain scents, um, dogs sniff more with their right nostril first, and then they move to their left nostril. And with ones that they find aversive, they stay with their left nostril. I believe I'm, tr I might be misremembering I uh, no, stay with the right nostril because they stay with their right. Yes, because the nose is um, the nose is what's called ipsilateral. So the right nostril goes to the right hemisphere, and the left nostril goes to the left hemisphere. Different than the eyes, different than the hands, different than the mouth. So if there's something they don't like, uh, the the researchers who did this work studied the smell of veterinary sweat. Um, that and this is presumably given to dogs who have experienced um, multiple episodes at a veterinarian's where things might have been happening that they didn't love. They uh, yeah. have a negative response, and you can see that in their nostril activity. Uh, you have to look very closely, uh, but yes, they're showing us something in that behavior that tells us about how it's being processed in the brain. Unbelievable. I mean that mm. that. That sort of that blew my mind that of uh, 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 this this right nostril approach behaviors that they're actually until they can in, in, until they almost approve of the scent then they're going to go in just with the right nostril only and I think it's it's stunning I mean you know everything about dogs just surprises me and delights me and amazes me but that was I think that research that I think started in Italy if I remember it was a mm. while ago um but anyway has has shown us uh, again and uh, uh, opened up a whole new world of information um but then as so you've got a dog that's taking in this in this smell and with this incredible nose and then it goes past these turbinates that sort of almost funneling the air back into the nose. Could you talk about scent receptors? Mm -hmm. And then this incredible organ that humans don't have, but the dogs do. Mm. Right. So if you're in, if you're an odor that's coming to the nose, you're headed back to these uh, this area in the dog that's called the olfactory recess, um, which is a place where odor molecules can kind of linger until they attach to a receptor cell. It's just a cell lining the back of the nose, which has a shape that will accept certain molecules. Dogs have, as I said, hundreds of millions more of these receptor cells than our noses do. So they have not just more, but more kinds of shapes of cells. So they can actually detect, capture, and, and notice 
more types of scents than we can, different shapes of molecules than we can. And then, of course, no scent is just one kind of molecule. So it's actually a combination of many. So they can deconstruct and understand and interpret more complex molecules than we can. Um, and then if it fits that receptor cell, the cell fires and it goes to the brain. The first part of the brain where uh, this information lands is the olfactory lobe, which is the thing that's going to interpret it and the and kind of create that percept of, oh, that's a smell, right? Until that, it's just a molecule in your nose. And the dog's olfactory lobe is huge uh, relative to their brain compared to ours, right? We have a very tiny olfactory lobe, sadly. Um, but then they have this whole other, what I think of as a second nose. Um, it's not really a nose, and it doesn't follow that pathway. It's under the nose, above the roof of the mouth, and it's called the vomeronasal organ, or sometimes the Jacobson's organ, or the VNO. And it's something that most mammals do have, and it's a way for dogs to perceive uh, odor molecules which actually are heavier. So they don't have what we would consider traditionally a smell. They wouldn't be detected by the receptor cells in the nose. But instead, these heavier odor molecules have to be absorbed into the skin. Let's go back to that wet nose. That's a way to absorb these pheromones into the skin, and they get um, uh, brought up to the vomeronasal organ. And these, the vomeronasal organ detects these pheromones, hormones that have a lot of information about uh, sex is about this. It will give information about the sex of the dog, um, who they're smelling, their readiness to mate, for instance, and also potentially information about their health, um, maybe their stress levels, just as hormones can carry. Now, when you sometimes see, and I, I've seen this a lot, especially in sighthounds for some reason, teeth chattering. It's not, right. it's not so much, it's not so much teeth chattering. It's almost like it's a, I can't even, I can't even do it, but um, <laughs> it's like the mouth goes like this and it's all, yeah. almost like they're drinking in air. Now, yeah. It, it could be that the dog is anxious, it could be, but I've seen a lot of dogs when they are, when they catch a scent in the air, suddenly they start to do it. And when they're smelling where other dogs have been, or the urine where other dogs have been, they can do it too. Mm -hmm. Is that these dogs trying to get more information up to that vomeronasal organ? Yeah, precisely. It's it's a response that dogs don't have as kind of beautifully, although I'll, I'll use that word in quotes, uh, represented as as some other animals do. It's called the flamen response. And horses are, or, or cows are really great. You'll see a horse do a kind of grimace with their, pull their lips back. And it's like, a, it's really kind of a horrible look. And that's the flamen response, which is literally bringing these heavier weight molecules that might be in liquid, that might be on the air, back to the vomeronasal organ. So the dog's chatter response is is do a flamen response. It's doing the same thing, yeah. Yeah, just amazing. Now, the other thing as well that I've learned from your book is that depending on the sex of your dog, that males and females greet in potentially different ways when they meet other dogs. Right. Uh, and that does have to do as well with scent, doesn't it? And I believe pheromones. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it is kind of beautiful research. This is not my research, but I read about it in, in Being a Dog. Uh, 
female dogs, on average, are more likely to greet a new dog, a strange dog, as we'd say, um, by sniffing the face. Now, we have, and dogs have, lots of scent glands around the eyes and face and ears. So you'll see dogs sniffing each other in the face. But that's more often a female dog's way of smelling who this dog is. Male dogs, they're male dogs. They go right to the rump. They're more likely to go to the rump to get information. Presumably, although I don't think this has been studied, because they are looking for some of that information about sex, um, the sex or sexual readiness of the dog they're sniffing, uh, like they're just a little more susceptible to having that be their first pass greeting than the female dogs. Yeah. That's that's again fascinating, um, and what kind that. of information they're gathering, of right. course, about you say that there's this, and this is not just dog to dog. They do that when they they greet people as well, but they're gathering information about so many different things. It's basically identity information, right? If we think about it, think of it an analog to you know what information we're getting when we put our eyes on someone new, right? We get a huge amount of information about who they are, potentially their sex, their style, maybe their health, right? Just from an eyeful, right? But all a lot of that information is also in smell. We as humans just aren't accustomed to thinking about uh, our sex as being as having a scent. But in fact, it does. um, And dogs can detect it. Every person has a different sense signature, don't we? And uh, as we move, we leave sense cells or we leave cells in our wake. They're called rafts. And dogs are smelling this. And that's why, and we'll get onto this a bit later as well about tracking. But uh, humans are pretty stinky. Are we giving (laughs) off the same kind of information that dogs are? I'm glad you said it and I didn't have to say it. But yes, we we do smell quite ripe. We do give off all that information that the dogs are giving off. Um, sexual information, identity about our genders. We're giving off information about our health, what we've eaten lately. I mean, that might be something kind of the easy way for us to th- imagine how uh, we might be kind of uh, effusing all this scent is that we know if somebody has eaten a strong smelling food, even we with our tiny little noses can detect it, right? To dogs, all these things are are strong smelling, right? And we have, of course, large number of scent producing glands all over our bodies. um, And dogs are very attracted to that too. And they use it to recognize their person. I did a... um, study wants to see if dogs could recognize, distinguish their person from a stranger just with the scent left on a t-shirt. And they could. They could detect their person's scent signature versus just, you know, another smelly t-shirt, which had been worn the same amount of time. So that's probably part of their, if we talk about what it's like to be a dog or what they perceive in the world, part of their way of seeing us is through our smell. That's how they recognize us. Uh, You see those great those fabulous videos of uh, like reunions of dogs with people who've been in the service in the military and they've been gone maybe years. Um, 
And sometimes they step out of a vehicle, the dog is released by someone else in the home, and they bark at first. They kind of don't recognize the person. The person might look very similar, but it's not until the wind turns or the dog gets close to the person and they get that sniff of who they are that you see that like really overjoyed, delighted response at, at reunion with this person. So I, I kind of, uh, it's really changed my mind thinking about dogs seeing the world through smell. Uh, I don't try to make myself more stinky, but I kind of acknowledge that that's part of how my dog will perceive me. And I try to delight in that, the fact that they, that they know something actually about me that I might not be aware of. You see all of those videos on YouTube, especially of people in the military that have returned after six months of being away or a year being away. And it's almost like the dog goes up to them, looks at them and goes, do I remember you? And then all of a sudden, when that scent hits them, they know exactly who those people are. It's amazing. Um, I'm speaking with Alexandra Horowitz. We're going to take a a quick break. And when we come back, Alexandra is going to answer the question, do dogs really smell fear? A quick break here to get a word from this episode's sponsor, the Victoria Stillwell Academy. Now, did you know that I have a school that teaches people to be dog trainers? I love It's Me or the Dog and my work as a dog trainer on television. But those of you who know me know that my true passion really lies with helping other people live their best lives with dogs. And I love seeing that truly magical transformation when that light bulb goes off with someone I'm helping with their dog. That's what it's all about. It's the secret sauce that pet professionals like me, who work with these amazing animals, that's what we all share. It's what makes being a dog trainer the most rewarding, enriching job I can imagine. It's why I love what I do. And it's also why I founded the Victoria Stillwell Academy, so that I could provide a roadmap to others who want to help dogs and the people who love them, learn to do what they love doing at the highest level, that is to become professional dog trainers. Earning a living working with dogs professionally has been a dream of mine for years. And that passion is what drives all of us at VSA to create courses that are specially designed to help adult human learners chase their dreams. Now, most people already know about our flagship dog trainer course, which provides both online only and in-person options. Did you know that we also offer both Dog Guardians and Future Professionals a fully refundable 10-hour online course taught by me and other awesome VSA faculty, and it's called the Fundamentals of Dog Training and Behavior course. Now, I know it's not the sexiest name, but it's one of the most dynamic learning experiences available to dog geeks, and it's a pretty awesome first step to see if learning with VSA is right for you. Now, as a Positively Podcast listener, you can use promo code podcast right now to get the fundamentals course for 50% off. That is $150 value. So take our course. Plus, we also have a couple of free starter courses. They're free, completely free, including a course called Building Your Dog's Confidence, which reveals the secret ingredient to a happy dog life. So I encourage you to check out VSA today. As I said, we have courses for all levels of learners. So it doesn't matter whether you're a newbie with your first puppy or a a grizzled vet already making a living as a pet professional. 
Visit Positively.com slash VSA to learn more and enroll in a free course. That is Positively.com slash VSA. We all want the best for our dogs. Whether that means you taking home some key tips for your own dogs or adding the ultimate in professional dog trainer education, visit Positively.com slash VSA today. VSA, it is the future of dog training. And now, back to the podcast. I'm back speaking with the wonderful Alexandra Horowitz. And before the break, we were talking about how dogs smell us. So, Alexandra, is it right? Can dogs actually smell fear? Essentially, yes. Uh, it's not the only way that some a dog could detect somebody who is fearful, say, of dogs or in a fearful condition, right? Our behavior also gives a lot away. But there has been now, a, there have been a couple of studies that verify that they basically are smelling stress, right? This something will give off when we're fearful is cortisol. And they are able to detect that if you, uh, research has given dogs, has trained dogs to distinguish the smell of uh, cortisol from a neutral smell. And then they give them canisters, unmarked canisters that have breath and sweat samples from humans who were in a state of stress. Um, they were actually given some difficult arithmetic problems to do, and they got very stressed. <laughs> that would stress this... me out completely. <laughs> <laughs> they took these uh, breath, especially with the researcher, you know, sitting over you and ready to take your sweat, um, sweat and breath samples from these subjects, and then the dogs were able to find them, right? So they are smelling it. They know how to smell it. These are not working dogs who've been trained on drug detection and illegal electronics detection. These are your dog, right, who can naturally smell this. Um, and so combined with the behavior, yes, they absolutely experience that as uh, themselves. Now, are they interpreting it as your fear? You know, that's like a more imponderable question. And my with my scientist hat on, I say, I don't you know, it seems to me that's something that they alert to and they're interested in and they can notice and then they look to you to see what to do next. I want to pivot a tiny bit now from talking a little bit about, you know, our sense signature and how dogs perceive us and how dogs perceive other dogs and how they process that information to something that I think is a question that you have you've you've attempted to answer i think you do it beautifully can dogs tell time mm -hmm. through scent mm -hmm. now we know that when dogs track people and i've worked with a lot of working dogs especially police dogs and seen and many and been at the end of the lead when a dog is tracking and doing tracking exercises as well as being in the field when a dog is actually doing a track and understanding that the actual the odor is more concentrated when you get to that source of that odor and it fans out almost like a cone depending on how the air mm -hmm. flows as that person or that thing that the dog is tracking is further away but the the, the footprints that the dog might be be uh, detecting at the beginning of the track 
are much weaker than the actual source of the odor. Is that therefore, I would say, connected to how you think that dogs are processing time as well? It is. It's at the heart of it. Um, and this is a ponderous question as well, right? What is dogs' experience of time? They obviously don't have a clock sense in them. We all share circadian rhythms, right? Every cell of our body and dogs has a circadian clock in it. So they move through time as we move through time. But it occurred to me when looking at some of the research, like that research you described um, uh, earlier from Deborah Wells and Peter Hepper, which looked at tracking dogs, like the ones that you've also followed, where they're basically able to tell which direction somebody has gone, somebody who's absent, um, over the course of five footsteps. So five go to the left and five go to the right. They're able to tell, identify their source, um, basically by the concentration, difference in concentration and odors from the first to fifth footsteps. So what is actually a very minute difference in concentration of odor, it does seem to me like that's uh, essentially telling time. So the oldest odor, the, the footstep that's the furthest away from where the person is now, is, is sort of a representation of the past. And the less distant past is the next footstep, which um, is slightly closer to that person. And so on and so on and so on until you catch their, their present, until you catch the person themselves. And so when a dog goes outside of their home and they put their nose to the ground, I think that what they're perceiving is that moment. We're in the mo shared moment with them, but also a little bit of the extended past because they're perceiving whoever has passed by and left sloughed off odor, which is now landed on the ground, uh, as all odor eventually does. Um, and then two, if they put their nose in the air, and they sniff into the breeze, which is coming from down the block, say, they're essentially seeing a little bit into the future about someone who might be rounding the corner. Um, and the airflow from that person catches their nose. So I do think they have this expanded sense of the moment, right? Their feeling of what's happening right now might be different and it incorporates a little bit of past and future in it. So I, it's an imaginative way to imagine their, to think about their sense of time, but I think it is partially through smell that they experience uh, moments and the cadence of the day. What about the way that scent changes in a house during the day? Because, you know, you have a lot of people saying, well, my dog waits. They, they, I've seen on video that at a certain time of the day, my dog will go to the door to wait because it knows I'm coming home. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that to do with scent? Because scent does change throughout the day in your house. Right. So airflow changes throughout the day in your house. As the house warms up, air goes up the wall, right? Not in huge gusts that you would notice, but there's actual airflow up the wall. It hits the ceiling and then it tumbles down. So air changes with heat over the course of the day. If you are, say, a dog sensitive to odors on the air and at home every day, you will notice that the pace of the day is marked by changes in smells. Um, and I did hypothesize that one of the ways that dogs might be able to identify when their person is coming home without other cues, without auditory cues, without it being at exact same moment is 
um, that the scent of the person whose return they're anticipating has actually diminished a certain amount through the day. Um, and so at a certain point, when there's sort of less of their smell around, it's when they anticipate that they're going to arrive. And there was a, um, a science show, actually, which did a little test of this with one dog, a Vishla, who could, uh, this is an N of one, so this is not a scientific study, but it was a, a great demonstration. This Vishla always anticipated the arrival of her male owner of her person home and uh, independent of what anybody else in the household was doing. Um, and so we tried to essentially undermine the dog's ability to detect via this odor concentration when the person would arrive by sneaking in a shirt that he'd worn at the gym in the middle of the day to the house, introducing this like more concentration of his odor into the house and then waiting to see if the dog anticipated his arrival that evening as he had every other day. And he did not, right? It seemed to be thrown <laughs> off by having this like increased presence of the person through their smell introduced halfway through the day. So again, are they mapping the pace of the day through smell? I think maybe subconsciously but absolutely yes just yeah that's that's really good i think more needs to be done on that one. Oh, it would be a great one it's very tricky and there are people who everybody's fascinated by the dogs who seem to be able to detect um our arrival and they're just there's so many elements to control in an experiment so that you can find the one that's actually doing the work um so i haven't figured it out yet but i Anybody out there listening who wants to do that study, I encourage it. <laughs> Drop please, me a line. Please, <laughs> The more we have, the better. Um, and of course, we've harnessed this dog's amazing sense of smell to to help us in detection of, obviously, we've talked about tracking, but detecting certain diseases. Um, I did a show that um, was called Dogs with Extraordinary Jobs, which was mostly mm -hmm. about visiting dogs all over the world that did incredible jobs for people, maybe jobs that people don't really associate with dogs, but showing that incredible ability. And most of those jobs were utilizing the dog's sense of smell. Hmm. And so how can we, and of course there are many ways, but would you say, what would you say would be sort of your top ways that we could use this dog's ability to to not just our advantage, but to their advantage too. Hmm. How can we use smell to help a enrich their day, but also to help them feel better, to be happy? Well, I absolutely think that one of the problems with the modern dog in human society is that because we do not appreciate smell for the most part as humans, I'm generalizing here, but for the most part, we don't, you know, we think of smells as kind of either good or bad and probably mostly bad if you live in New York City in the summer, for instance. Yes, um, <laughs> yes dreadful. But <laughs> as a result, we fail to appreciate their me the meaning of sense for dogs, right? The way that it's drawing a picture of the world. And I absolutely encourage uh, people to go for dedicated smell walks with their dogs where the dog mm -hmm. can, it's not a dog, it's not a walk for exercise, it's not a walk for you or to get to the cleaners and home before you have to go to work. It's just for the dog to see 
what is out there, right? Um, instead of yanking your dog away from every smell, appreciate that this is actually their Van Gogh, right? They are in a museum of scents and give them some time to look to their heart's content rather than snatching them away and rushing to the next spot. Uh, also walks for exercise, also walks for socialization, but I think a walk can be like this as well, right? So I think that's one thing. We, uh, I did a study with a woman, um, a researcher in Paris, Charlotte Duranton, where um, this was actually after I had put my dog Finnegan through nose work classes as part of our experience uh, of trying to understand, my experience of trying to understand the dog's olfactory worldview in being a dog. Um, and he he loved it. He loved nose work. Plenty of people know about nose work. But I also, mm -hmm. and I think it's very positive, but I also saw that there were a lot of changes in the dogs who um, were participants in this class with us, right? So the reactive dogs were less reactive by the end of the class. And the dogs who were very, very dependent, you know, it was like highly obedient, but almost to the point where they're unable to act on their own, which which I don't think is great for the dog's well-being, um, were a little more independent, right? Able to move around a room without like command from their person. Um, an anxious dog was less anxious. So we actually did do a little study um, seeing if nose work versus heel work performed over a couple of weeks by naive dog handler pairs for people who had not done these sports before changed the overall frame of mind of the dogs after several weeks of practice of this. And this was just several weeks, right? They didn't become competition nose work or heel work um, participants. They just explored it every day. And the dogs in the nose work got more optimistic over those weeks. In other words, their just general well-being seemed to improve a notch. And I think that that type of thing is important. It doesn't have to be a classic nose work training cell, uh, class. It could be you hiding things around your apartment for the dog to search for, um, helping them search, and then they'll do it on their own. Acknowledging this part of their experience is, I think, the first step to improving their welfare and their life. I think so too. And, you know, just, we call them sniffaries, take your dog yes. outside for a little sniffari. And I do, I see people, I have a walking kind of track outside my house and uh, it's part of this three mile track that people like to walk on. And I see them just pulling their dog as the dog wants to go and sniff something. But I do think, I do think you can share the walk a little bit. You can have a, let your dog have a sniffari and then it's a bit more of your human time of like getting your physical exercise together. But how important that is and working with so many dogs as I do focusing on dogs that do have anxieties that um, working with dogs that have uh, uh, displaying aggressive behavior one of the most important things that I do with them is to open up this world of smell and to mm. encourage great problem solving and uh, giving them opportunities to indulge in something that they're really good at naturally good at and as you as you say I see such huge benefits for the dogs and their people that I'm working with. Uh, I want to pivot slightly now because your latest book is uh, about puppies, the year of the puppy, how dogs become themselves. And so my first question to you before you tell us a little bit about more, uh, more of the book is, 
how important is it that we teach puppies from day one mm. to, or we encourage them to use their noses? Mm. That's such a fascinating question. Um, and I should say, you know, I looked at the research uh, that's an early dog development, and I observed this sort of a scientific memoir. I sort of observed my own dog uh, with a scientist's eye, but that's an N of one. Um, what thing I did observe is that, you know, right away, dogs are using their noses. That's, they're blind, they're born blind, they're born deaf, right? They can't thermoregulate, they can barely move, they can't, they can, can't lift up their giant heads. They can only basically suck and you see little kneading motions and that's about it. Um, but they can find their mom by smell. And so it's from the beginning, that's a part of their experience. Interestingly, I didn't see them becoming great sniffers till several weeks on, but a lot is coming online in those first several weeks, right? So that's when sun is coming online. They start seeing the world and smelling the world and following social others, starting to find food for themselves as opposed to just at mom's belly. And then smell takes on a different meaning. So I think that it has to be available to them, right, from very early on. But you stick a little odor canister into the nose nostril of a of a three-week-old puppy, as I have done, and they are not that interested in it, right? The smell that is important to them is the one that's important for survival at that moment. And that's the smell of their siblings and mom. And and that's and that's what's important to to have with them. Later, when they're expanding into the human universe and all those smells of relatives are gone, I think that's when it's important to continue expanding their uh, olfactory world through smell, allowing them to have that sort of social connection with other dogs through smell. Now, tell me, tell me a little bit more um, of some of what readers will find in your book. Sure, and I'm going to show you. I'm going to show because you the cover as well. Did you write this starting? Yeah, there it is. I love that. Now, did you start writing this in the pandemic because everybody got puppies in the pandemic, which was just awful? Because now, yeah, unfortunately, the shelters were filling up of adolescent dogs and adult dogs when the puppies became less cute and people had to go back to work. But uh, did you start writing this in the pandemic? I did. Uh, the research for it began before the pandemic. So actually, that was just a coincidence that um, the world was going to be extra focused on puppies uh, because of the pandemic and our attraction to them. I had realized that I, you know, I had always adopted my dogs. I'd gotten to them several months or years into their lives, and I had never um, met a dog who I knew from the first day of their life. That's just the way it happens if you're going to uh, adopt a dog from a shelter, for instance. And that and that's what I always have done. So um, I wanted to know a dog from day one. And I wanted to see what those early influences on their life and exposures uh, and events had to do with their later personality. Um, and I now, you've written a book on puppies. I had not written a book on puppies. I also did a lot of research into the science of the early dog development. So the book is tracing my following this litter of what turned out to be 11 puppies um, that were being fostered um, by a breed rescue group. It was actually a mixed breed dog that had been picked up in, in Georgia and brought up to upstate New York where the mom gave birth. Um, and then 
the pandemic happened in the middle of my watching this litter um, and observing their behavior and seeing those their little you know personalities bloom. Um, and I realized that the time of people letting me come over and watch the puppies inside their house was probably gone. And I didn't know for how long. So I realized if we're going to add a dog to our family, we had two large dogs at the time, Finnegan and Upton. This was the, this was going to be this litter. Uh, you know, I was watching several litters, but at that moment, just that one. And so we adopted one of the dogs from that litter. Um, and then I subsequently, you know, watched her grow up. So this is the first year of her life and of, for the first nine and a half weeks of her siblings uh, and mother's life. And it's about a number of the stages which you well know about, but frankly, I did not know as well about um, in their early life how important they are. And even past that very early dog development, the significance and relevance of adolescence in terms of their behavior um, coming right at this time, as you say, where um, we're hearing about a lot of dogs that get returned to shelters or given up outright. So, And there are people who have written about adolescence and teenagerness in dogs. And so I also focus on that. So it's a little bit of a scientific journey. And it's a lot more personal than I thought it would be because in fact you know adding a new little sprite to your family in the middle of pandemic or not is a big change it changes everybody's dynamic and um, it was an emotional roller coaster and I also want to acknowledge for people who feel like oh that you know they can there are simple things they can do right like your teaching methods your training methods are brilliant. And if somebody just feels like, oh, if I'm assiduous enough at this and I'm practicing this all the time, the dog is just going to be perfect. And of course, this is impossible, right? There's not, I mean, it's just not the case. A, there's no yes. like one set of things you can do. And then the dog comes out perfect and just, and nothing ever changes, right? It's about a longer term relationship. And I also just wanted to s talk about our own family's experience going through that, even as a dog researcher, you know, the struggle is real. There, The perfection comes built into the puppy and it's just a matter of our realizing that. Uh, maybe that takes a year to realize. Maybe it takes more. Um, so that's what the book is about. I, I, you know, now the little pup on the cover is two and a half years old and we've lost Amazing. the other two dogs <laughs> in our family. So mm -hmm. it's 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 been a really fascinating and poignant transitional time for us um and i'm enormously glad i got the chance to do it and um the pandemic actually gave us the opportunity to have such a interesting and vivid experience of each other um although i wouldn't wish it again <laughs> on anyone <laughs> right it's you know i i I always really empathize, sympathize with people when uh, they're going through those puppy years of raising a puppy because it is not for the faint hearted. And, you know, I think people will, they, they look at us and uh, because we're dog people and we we write about dogs and we work with dogs all the time and and that, that oh, well, we'll know, we're, we have it easy. Like mm. our dogs are perfectly trained. And, and I always say, well, actually, 
N- no, it, it, we're, we're like any other. Yes, we might have a bit of more, more information about how to do things, but we're like we're like anybody else. We're yeah. going to go through. I mean, challenges with our dogs. I, I got my my dog, my Chihuahua, when she was six months old. She'd already had a lifetime before she came to me. There was a lot right. of things I had to address with that. She's not a quick perfect dog, but she's perfect for me. Right. And. Uh, and also, you know, I got my senior dog when she was 11 years old. She's now 15. There was challenges with her as well. So we're we're all with you. And I think that's the reason why your your books have been so, I mean, so life-changing for me in the fact that don't think that you're going to be reading a scientific book and that it's going to be stodgy and boring because it's not. Because I think the fact that you do personalize it and you write in such a beautiful way that we can we can see it. So, for example, in Being a Dog, I know that you wrote a lot about, um, and I think you also did Our Dogs Ourselves, where you write about actually people going out themselves so that they maybe have a, a deeper appreciation of what it's like to be outside and there they go sniff a tree you go <laughs> sniff a blade of grass you you become more aware of what surrounds you and i just have to uh, talk a little bit about how when i was pregnant mm. a world of smell opened up to me Fabulous, i had no right? idea what was going on but smells that i had no that that really didn't impact me negatively before the smell of chicken, the smell of chocolate. I don't eat meat anymore, but the the chocolate for me was like my number one thing. Absolutely disgust. I could not smell it anymore. I could mm. not, and so, and it seemed like I was so much more aware of scent. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was happening with me that right. I was more aware and. You don't have to be pregnant to do this, but like, how can we get a little bit of more information about you know what the world of smell is like for our dogs? You're right. This happens to a lot of people when they're uh, pregnant, and also recently. I mean, COVID has given the world a little bit of a um, a schooling about how important smell is to all of us, right? Because so many people lose temporarily or even permanently thus far their sense of smell. It's critical for taste. I did right? lose it's, my sense of smell, not permanent, but I did lose it, my sense of smell and taste at the same time. Yeah. It's often COVID, for yeah. people, that is the first time they've thought about their sense of smell and how it's connected to taste. I mean, most of taste is smell. So you know, just as we know from having a, you know, a, a very bad cold and being congested and food all tastes funny. If it gets completely knocked out, it's a major deprivation. It's a loss of this great off for many people, great pleasure of the experience of food, of sharing food. And also it's the loss of information about the world that you just take in through smell that you don't maybe realize, not just dangers like uh, a, a smell of leaking gas, but also the smell of familiar smells, smell of your dog, smell of your dog's feet, the smell of your partner or your child's head, right? All. This maybe the smell of your house is a familiar smell and you're not thinking about it most of the time, but with its absence, it's a real loss. Um, and I think that, you know, when I did Being the Dog, as you said, I wanted to take a cue from the dog. And so I did try to do some dog-like behaviors. And that meant 
Why are we not smelling all the time? A, because we're not paying attention. Also, we don't put our nose closest to things. So now it's inevitable. Whatever I pick up, you know, I put my nose in it, right? And it has a smell. Of course, the book has a smell. It has a great, mm-hmm. I love, I love yeah, book it's smell. Yes, smell. But, you know, mm-hmm. the pencil, the glass of water, everything gets like a close examination. Um, So like losing the shyness about that, because for some reason, culturally, we have a big shyness about smelling things closely, right? Like I I warned my friends, but when I would give them a hug, I would I would give them a sniff as well. (laughs) And they, you know, but I had to warn them, right? Because somehow that's weird. But why should it be weird? I'm also looking at them, right? And that's not ogling them. That's just seeing this is just smelling. And I and I kind of already know who the, who they are through their smell, so it's making it more conscious. And I would, I also learn to name smells a lot better. I think that's every expert smeller that I had met. They didn't, they weren't always great smellers, right? These are perfumers or wine experts. Mm-hmm. They just practice doing a lot of smelling, and the way they remember is by trying to put names to smells of what it is or the scene it reminds them of. Memory is really closely connected with smell, so. They would do that. Um, I just rec- encourage people to like a take a cue from their dog. So put things closer to your nose. Notice if you have a leaf in your hand, it's fall. You know, crush the leaf between your fingers. And this experience of just exposing myself to more smells changed how I smell the world, right? I didn't become an expert smeller, but I do enjoy smells a lot more. They're no longer just good or bad, right? They're just information about the world. And they're even sometimes where there's a previously what I thought of was a bad smell. And I said, well, you know, that's information about the garbage has been left out for five hours on the hot New York City street, not just repulsion, right? So somehow, in that, I think I'm getting a little closer to being a dog, right? Being dog like, (laughs) by trying to embody the the sensory world that is around us that we have just stood up and ignored. Alexandra, I knew that you were going to be amazing to speak to. And thank you so much for joining me on this uh, on on my podcast. I hope that uh, all of you listeners out there, whether you're listening on audio or watching on video, that you have gained a ton of information from today. I do encourage you to read Alexandra's books, each and every one of them. His Being a Dog and uh, Following the Dog into a World of Smell, This Inside of a Dog, What Dogs See, Smell and Know. There's this fascinating book our dogs ourselves the story of a singular bond and then of course we have the year of the puppy how dogs become themselves thank you so much for joining us please don't stop researching don't stop writing because i know that anything out there and anybody who knows you anybody reads what you have the research you've done and what you've written are going to benefit greatly and their dogs will too I could say all the same for you, Victoria. It's always a pleasure talking to you. So thank you. Thank you. All right, guys, this is the end of the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed yourselves and I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to Victoria Stillwell's Positively Podcast. For Victoria's online dog training courses, more information and helpful dog training tips, 
visit her official website at Positively.com. Become a professional dog trainer with the Victoria Stillwell Academy at VSDogTrainingAcademy.com. Get connected on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media as Victoria Stillwell, and follow her on Twitter at Victoria S. Be sure to tune in next time as Victoria helps you and your dog live your best life together. Positively.